At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 24, British Intelligence, 1945 to 1950. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. So today we're going to examine British intelligence and its role in shaping the early Cold War. As always, this episode is more or less a high-level examination of British intelligence in the early Cold War. I can't and won't be covering everything in this episode. I would also definitely recommend listening to episode 16 on the KGB and 18 on the Cambridge Five, as this episode in many ways builds on those. The British intelligence community was established in 1909 and was eventually split in two, MI5 and MI6, or its official acronym SIS. MI5 is sort of like the FBI for my American listeners. It tracks uh, domestic intelligence. However, it's not a, a law enforcement agency like the FBI. MI5 does not arrest people. Despite its being domestic, it operated for much of the Cold War overseas in Britain's colonies, whereas MI6 is sort of like the CIA for strictly overseas intelligence and clandestine operations. MI5 and MI6 often had turf arguments during this era. Indeed, officers who joined MI5 in the early Cold War could expect to spend a quarter of their careers on overseas postings in the Empire and the Commonwealth. Initially, they were established to deal with the fear of German intelligence and spies before the outbreak of the First World War. The Tsarist intelligence service, the Arcana, was another such target. The service's performance during the First World War was mixed uh, because it was unable to establish a network in Germany itself. Most of its results came from military and commercial intelligence collected through networks in neutral countries, occupied territories, and Russia. After the war, resources were significantly reduced. During the 1920s and 1930s, the primary target was the Soviet Union and communist parties. British intelligence came out of World War II triumphant. They had successfully cracked the Enigma Code. The speed of the process was remarkable, and on many occasions, the British were decrypting German messages and delivering them to Allied HQ even before German generals or diplomats received orders from OKW or the Fuhrer. Their special operations, arming resistance movements throughout Europe and the commando SAS raids were legendary, and they had successfully turned almost all of the German agents in Britain to work for them. After the defeat of France, Britain fought on with its empire for about a year before it was joined by the Soviet Union and the United States. During the war, an intelligence station was established, codenamed 30 Mission, to work with the Soviets. The staff was selected for their deep knowledge of the Soviet Union and language skills. Many had served with the Whites during the Russian Civil War or as attachés in the 1920s, so they had strong anti-communist credentials. As you can imagine, this complicated relations with the Soviets. 
The British did share ultra information with the Soviets, but always worried about poor Soviet cipher codes and the Germans discovering via the Soviets that their codes had been broken. Moreover, during the war, a small section of British intelligence continued to break a minor amount of Soviet, American, and neutral signal traffic. This was a revelation to myself, as many of the sources I've read claim that Britain didn't spy on either the U.S. or the Soviet Union and focused all of its resources on the Axis powers. They claimed that this was because they didn't want to offend their allies and they lacked the resources to spy on friendly states. However, Richard Aldrich, a professor out of Warwick, uh, does provide some pretty reasonable evidence for a small operation that existed. Relations between the British and American intelligence was complex and could at times be prickly. Although American and Britain agreed on the major objectives of the war, they often found themselves competing in more remote areas of the world. For example, the British tried to limit American intelligence cooperation with the Soviets and tried to dominate the relationship. The Americans, however, insisted on sending their own mission to Moscow, which they eventually did. The Americans also felt a little embarrassed. The exchange of classified material made it clear that the Americans were amateurs in many ways and lacked a centralized intelligence system like the British. Nevertheless, both sides shared an immense amount of secrets with each other and were busy signing intelligence agreements with each other from 1942 on. By 1944, even before the end of the war, they had formally agreed to exchange intelligence about the makeup and disposition of Soviet forces. I want to take a quick break here and thank you for listening and for sharing the show with your friends on social media. I also want to give a special thanks for Demar Obad. Uh, I, miss, I apologize if I mispronounce your name and his generous contribution. It means a lot to us. So if you have questions, want to provide feedback, donate, or follow up, follow us on social media, check out our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. Now back to the show. World War II had radically changed the world politically. Germany, Japan, Italy, and France had vanished as major military powers, while the United States and the Soviet Union, both militarily weak powers in the 1930s, were now the world's leading military powers. Moreover, the war sparked a series of liberation movements throughout the developing world as the traditional European empires crumbled. Warfare fundamentally changed. New methods such as blitzkrieg and strategic bombing, along with weapons like atomic bombs, electronics, jets, early computers, proximity fuses, radars, and many other inventions intensified war, making World War II much costlier than previous conflicts. Intelligence was not immune from this technological and methodological revolution. The traditional spycraft of human agents, like in previous conflicts, played a role in World War II, but this was augmented with signals intelligence or the process of intercepting enemy signals and decoding them. Aerial reconnaissance also came to play a key role. These new methods and technologies created a mountain of data that had to be sifted through and analyzed. The Second World War also witnessed the rise of organized resistance movements like the Free French or Soviet partisans who were supported clandestinely by intelligence agencies. Special operations warfare was also refined with units like the British Commandos and SAS, whose role was to attack critical targets or cause chaos and sabotage behind enemy lines. Propaganda, misinformation, and psychological warfare also took on a much greater role, especially with the rise of radio, which gave intelligence organizations direct access to the minds of an enemy population. 
Gone were the days of small spy agencies of a few hundred spies working in the shadows. Now intelligence was industrial. Managerial structures were formed. Boards and bureaucracies were created to deal with the enormous flow of classified material. Marshalling and supplying resistance movements and partisans, planning special operations, creating and curating propaganda, British intelligence worked closely with the military, political leadership, colonial office, and foreign office, who it considered its customers, and the need for intelligence reports from these customers was ever-growing. Like in America after the end of World War II, Great Britain was split between how to deal with the Soviet Union in the post-war world. Many in Britain on the left and the British Foreign Ministry thought that the Soviets had proved it to be, if not loyal, dedicated allies and that Britain would be able to work out a long-term peace with the Soviets as the Soviet state had diplomatically normalized its relations with the international community since the 1930s. They understood that the Soviets would have security concerns about Eastern Europe and interest in the Mediterranean. The conservatives, the military, and the intelligence community felt different. They saw the Soviet Union as an aggressive ideological force that would have to be reckoned with once Hitler and the Nazis were defeated. The conservatives felt that communism was a sinister ideology and a threat to the wider empire and their way of life. They remembered that Stalin had originally been an ally of Hitler and had joined in the conquest of Poland. He had also conquered the Baltics and invaded Finland in 1939. They also remembered how Stalin in 1944 had sat back and watched the Polish be crushed by the Germans in the Warsaw Uprising, when they very easily could have come to their aid. The British military certainly regarded the Soviet Union as the next enemy, for both a strategic and a budgetary perspective. The Soviet Union, with its armies deep in Central Europe and its undemocratic nature, was the obvious, most likely future enemy. The British, like the Americans, were committed to not seeing Western Germany fall to communism. The British military, with the backing of Churchill, began planning for a war with the Soviet Union as soon as the war in Europe was over. Critically, they kept this a secret from the Americans, especially FDR, who they knew would be furious about such planning. But at the military level, many American generals like Patton and MacArthur were sympathetic with the British position. Domestically, the British military also needed the Soviets to justify their very existence. Without an enemy to point to like the Soviets, they could expect to see drastic defense cuts like in the 1920s and 1930s. For the British intelligence community, it was a return to the good old days. In the 1920s and the 1930s, British intelligence had worked to contain the Soviet Union and the threat to communism the Brit and the British Empire. MI5 kept extensive files on known and suspected communists and sympathizers, sharing this information with her dominions and the United States. This low-intensity war colored much of the attitude amongst British intelligence personnel towards the Soviet Union. Many on the left and British diplomats were quickly dissuaded of their views about cooperating with the Soviets as Stalin took a hard line in Eastern Europe with the Turks and blockaded Berlin. The bitter hatred between the British and Soviet foreign minister secretaries Bevin and Molotov also contributed to their ill relations. Bevin even attempted to physically attack Molotov during one of the summits and had to be held back. Even among those who did see the Soviet Union as a threat, there was a debate as to what to do about it. Some agreed with the Americans and George Kennan's policy of containment, whereas others argued for a rollback of Marxism from Eastern Europe, short of war, by the use of resistance fighters, sabotage, propaganda, and psychological warfare. 
Like the British military, British intelligence feared a return to the 1920s and 1930s with deep cuts and even a dissolution in the post-war world. There was naturally a reorganization with some departments merged while some were disbanded. MI6 was placed under the Foreign Office, and Special Operations was also absorbed into MI6. The big cuts, however, never came. Britain's political and military leadership realized the value of intelligence in the the last war and realized its value in the coming conflict and made intelligence a priority in terms of funding. Even during the harsh austerity of 1947, as other government departments in the military saw their funds slashed, intelligence remained largely untouched. The British feared a surprise attack, especially with the advent of atomic weapons. Therefore, intelligence became a key in detecting such an attack. Even in the late 1940s, Britain was already worried about the Soviets developing a rocket or guided missile with a nuclear warhead. By 1948, British intelligence was expanding once again, as even more dismantled departments were being brought back to life. MI5 came out of the war stronger than ever, and the Cold War only strengthened its hand. The service's powers were not well-defined outside of, quote, defend the realm. Its legal limits were unclear as well. It believed it had the authority to tap phones, read the mail, and bug offices through, through the royal prerogative outside of the court system. MI5 even spied on members of parliament and their families. They reported directly to the prime minister. During the early days of the Cold War, MI5 agents received little training and learned most of the skills on the job. The main target was the Soviet embassy. Soviet personnel mainly traveled by foot, taxi, or bus, and MI5 agents had to follow them to gather information. It wasn't until the late 1940s that MI5 acquired three cars to tail Soviet personnel. MI5 was a patriarchy, although the registry was almost exclusively female. They were typists and managed the mountains of paper and documents that the department generated. The first men didn't join the registry until 1976. During these years, most of the girls were daughters of officers or pretty girls from around town. They typically worked there for three or or five years before they became married, although some female agents were recruited to infiltrate the British Communist Party. MI6 was different. MI6 recruited women at the same level as men, and women headed some of the minor stations. However, the Foreign Office didn't always agree with MI6's views on equality. In 1949, they refused a woman agent for a Middle East station. MI6 also began to recruit more professionals from outside the military. By 1949, the Civil Service Recruiting Board was brought in to help find suitable candidates. Professional experience, intellectual ability, and language abilities were all formally taken into consideration for the first time. The pay was also raised. With the war over and more attractive careers available, MI6 felt it necessary to raise the pay of its agents. Pay could also be made in gold, diamonds, dollars, or local currencies. The British primarily gathered information about the Soviets through five primary channels. Ultra, German military experts and POWs, defectors from the Soviet Union, spies, and Viona. The first one might seem a little strange. Ultra, of course, was the British effort to break the German Enigma code. The the British used Ultra indirectly. By breaking the German code, they could read German intelligence traffic about the Soviet Union. Thus, by 1945, the British, via German intelligence, had a vast quantity of high-grade intelligence about the Soviet armed forces. 
Nevertheless, with the end of the war, most of this material became dated by 1948. Another source of data also lifted from the Germans was classified German documents about the Soviet Union and Soviet military experts, which were both captured at the end of the war. This information and the experts were quickly employed by both the British and Americans. The British and the Americans also captured thousands of POWs who had fought against the Soviets on the Eastern Front, who could be utilized for information about Soviet tactics, organization, and weapons. Some of the ex-Germans MI6 recruited were pretty horrible people, such as Major Horst Kopal, a leading expert on Soviet intelligence, but the former, a former Gestapo leader. Kopau was believed to have executed American airmen during the war. MI6 had all the charges against him dropped and faked his death and had a false identity created for him while he worked with them in Britain. One of the best sources of intelligence for the British were defectors. They provided first-hand knowledge of Soviet military, technological, and political activities. For example, the British learned about the Soviet atomic program by East German defectors who escaped the uranium mines and processing plants in Saxony. However, defectors pose risks. They could be kidnapped by the KGB. Or they might want to go home. Or they might be Soviet plants designed to mislead and misinform. Yona was another source of information. Although it was an American decryption success, it greatly helped the British. It rooted out the Cambridge Five, as we saw in episode 18. It also helped to disrupt communist spies in Australia. Each new suspect revealed further context, which required more examination. The task was difficult, since the Australian Communist Party had long expected to become outlawed and had built up a substantial underground organization. Two Australian diplomats were exposed as spies, one of whom worked in London and another who worked at the United Nations. This event led to a total reform of the Australian Intelligence Service in a period of being left out in the cold as the Americans refused to share information with them. Like in Britain and America, many of the members of the Australian Communist Party couldn't be convicted of espionage, as the Viona decrypts couldn't be used in the court given its classified nature. Viona also helped to catch the Soviet spy, uh, Klaus Folks, who had worked on the Manhattan Project and turned information over to the Soviets. The British immediately bugged his home, phone, read his mail, and put him under surveillance. Though much was discovered about his private life, including his affair, the investigation failed to provide or produce any hard evidence of espionage. However, through skillful interrogation by MI5 officer Jim uh, Skarkardon, he was able to convince folks to confess to espionage. The Americans, and especially the FBI, were irritated that the British wouldn't give them access to folks or transcripts of his interviews until after his trial was over. Interestingly enough, as a testament of the cooperation between British and American intelligence, the FBI and Army intelligence were more willing to share Viona with the British than they were with the Navy intelligence, the CIA, or even President Truman. Ironically, though, MI6 and MI5 were themselves already compromised. Even by 1952, only nine officers had unrestricted access to Viona material. Another 19 had restricted access to some parts or were aware of its existence. Secretaries were not allowed to open the envelopes. Even still, the KGB was able to get a man, William Wisbend, into the Army's signet agency who had joined the Army in 1942. He wasn't discovered until 1950. 
Great Britain was also able to get American Signet more messages to decrypt. In the 1960s, they convinced the Swedes to turn over old ciphers they had recorded from the Soviet embassy for the period March 1940 to April 1942. Beyond gathering intelligence, British intelligence took proactive measures in the early Cold War. For example, propaganda was revived. One of the greatest critics of communism during this period was George Orwell. Orwell had been a staunch social democrat for much of his life and had fought in the international brigades during the Spanish Civil War. His works Animal Farm and 1984 were both backed and distributed by the British and American government. Orwell not only offered up his services to the British government but supplied a list of 35 of his co-writers he believed to be communist and fellow travelers. One of the biggest operations for British intelligence after the war was stripping Germany of any technological or military secrets they could get their hands on. The British were specifically very interested in German chemical weapons and German nerve gas. The British hoped to use these weapons as a stopgap deterrent until their own nuclear weapons could be developed. In 1945, a SOE operation entered into the Soviet zone of control for East Germany and stole an entire archive of material spiriting away to their sector. To this day, we don't know the contents of the archive. British intelligence also, of course, installed stay-behind agents in German cities that were eventually occupied by the Soviets. These agents would then continue to supply information to the British from behind enemy lines. The quality of the agents, their backgrounds, and motivations all vary greatly. Only a handful worked beyond 1946. One of the most productive was codenamed Tudor, who lasted in Berlin until 1949. Another, a pre-war Jewish refugee who had a number of connections, produced valuable reports, but after a few months gave up and moved back to Britain. Another agent, codenamed P6, had been dropped into Hamburg in 1944. In 1945, he fell out of touch but reappeared in Berlin in 1946. In 1947, he stole a Soviet 85mm armor-piercing round and smuggled it into the West. In 1948, he followed this by stealing a Soviet propeller and was and had it again transported into the West. He was, however, later sacked for, quote, incurable inefficiency, close quote. They also had some success in infiltrating the lower levels of the German Communist Party. One of their best agents, a woman codenamed Cook, joined the party in Hamburg. As, as an illustration of the hardships of this time, she was actually paid in food. Many Germans were willing to work with MI6 as their country ceased to exist, but with the rise of West Germany in 1948, many ceased to work with MI6. Others, however, continued to work with them for personal reasons. One valuable agent's wife had actually been saved by the British from a Nazi camp, and he believed he owed a life debt to the British. The British tried to establish similar networks in Eastern Europe with less success. In Bulgaria, from June to October 1947, they were able to recruit nine sources, three of whom were British citizens. Over five months, 50 reports were produced, of which London considered 39 junk. Only four reports had been graded good enough to circulate. The Bulgarian Security Service had the British and Americans under constant surveillance. One American diplomat had even been caught handing money to a Bulgarian informant. A British agent escaped a similar fate after a car chase through the streets of Sofia, uh, but was soon exiled from the country for spying. 
MI6 also established a station in Salonika, Greece, to aid the Greeks in their civil war. From Greece, MI6 also hatched a plot to recruit airline pilots from Eastern Europe. A Czech pilot was recruited but died by accident before he could become, become operational. A Serb pilot was also recruited as well, but he came down with tuberculosis and was hospitalized. MI6 also tried to work with the Greek government to have Spitfires with reconnaissance cameras fly over southern Albania, Yugoslavia, and Bulgaria, but Greece refused. However, a Macedonian smuggler was hired to collect information from southern Yugoslavia and was paid 10 pounds per report. The British also recruited a team of Greeks to sneak across the border and spy on the Bulgarians. However, with the end of the Greek Civil War in 1949, operations in Greece slowed down. MI6 also had a number of agents operating in Scandinavia. The British worked closely with Swedish and Norwegian intelligence to spy on the Soviets and the Swedish and Norwegian communist parties. They also helped Norway to finance a listening station in northern Norway to intercept Soviet communications. Norway also agreed to MI6 placing agents on its merchant ships that traded with the Soviet Union in Poland, as well as placing MI6 agents on flights to the Soviet Union in Poland. In Finland, they had several hundred agents by 1949. The problem was activating and running the agents without the Soviets discovering the operation. The British ultimately failed to infiltrate the Finnish Communist Party or Soviet military bases in the region. Like in Bulgaria, the Soviets kept a close watch of the British in the country. The British also tried to push back communism through Operation Valuable in conjunction with the CIA. This operation attempted to infiltrate partisans into Albania to overthrow the local communist government there. Albania was an attractive target because it didn't border the Soviet Union, and after the Stalin-Tito split in the summer of 1948, there was no ground route for Soviet forces to intervene and help the regime. Moreover, Albania seemed like a great training ground for the use of guerrilla warfare and special operations in the new conflict. The British and Americans recruited a motley crew of 200 volunteers, most of whom were in poor health, and some of whom we now suspect were members of Albanian state security. The British trained their operatives in Malta to be delivered by boat, whereas the CIA trained their troops in southern Germany to be dropped by parachute from C-47s. In October 1949, the British tried to land a team of 26 men on shore, but they were quickly ambushed and had to escape back to the beach. CIA attempts to drop agents in met with similar results. Each attempt was met with resistance by Albanian security forces who seemed to know in advance. Attempts again in 1950 by the British and Americans ended in failure, and the British turned the operation over to the Americans. In 1951, the Americans changed tactics and tried to infiltrate forces through Greece across the border, but again failed. There is some debate as to how the Albanians knew about these operations, but most sources blame Kim Philby. Domestically, Attlee and the government were committed to root out communists and fascists from the civil service. This was a huge task that MI5 didn't want. There were over a million public service files to review, and they saw this as a waste of time and resources when they could be hunting down real spies. By 1949, only 20 communists and one fascist had been identified through this negative vetting process. MI5 was also given the pointless task of vetting for homosexuals in the public service. The government had identified them as inherently untrustworthy and susceptible to blackmail. It's also unclear if they were aware of the KGB's preference in rec recruiting homosexuals. 
homosexuality at the time as well was was illegal and was also marked them as criminals in the eyes of many. MI5 and MI6 also started to monitor communist and leftist students and organizations. However, as we saw in episodes 16 and 18, this was a little too late as the Soviets had been recruiting students since the 1930s. MI5 had much better success in not only bugging the British Communist Party, but in in stealing all of its records and infiltrating moles, especially women, into the party to gather information. By 1952, it had identified about 90% of its members, uh, which were about 35,000. The missing 10% were primarily low-ranking, new, or young members. The service's main issue was dealing with the British Communist Party was reading through all the documents they stole from them. Beyond the Cold War in Europe, Great Britain was still maintaining a vast empire. MI6 concentrated its forces in Europe and the Middle East, with the remainder in Asia. Latin and Central America were virtually abandoned. By 1948, MI6 had only three stations in all of Latin America. In the Far East, the British had thousands of agents on the books in India and China, who they worked with in fighting the Japanese. The British had stations in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Nanking, Tokyo, Batavia, Hanoi, and plans for stations in Bangkok, Rangoon, Cabal, and Seoul. In China, MI6 was heavily dependent on the nationalists. The British made plans for stay-behind agents in as late as 1948 when they saw that Mao was going to win the Chinese Civil War. But she lost virtually all of her agents in China with the rise of the communists. Moreover, the Chinese in general felt a greater affinity to Mao and the Chinese Communist Party in 1949 and 1950 than they did to the Japanese who they spied against in World War II for the British. In Japan, MI6 lacked Japanese agents, although they did have a station chief who spoke Japanese fluently. However, he couldn't blend into the society. Second, the Americans forbid the British and any other allied government from conducting intelligence operations there. The British continued to exhibit a level of control over the Commonwealth intelligence offices. The Australian signet operation, for example, was controlled from London, and a British commander filled the position despite four well-qualified Australian candidates. In India, British intelligence prepared to withdraw and destroyed thousands of documents. As security began to deteriorate, only the lowest level of secret documents were passed to Delhi. Moreover, the British mistrusted the head of the new Indian security service, Krishna Minon, who they believed was a closet communist. But India wasn't the only Commonwealth nation Britain was worried about. Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa were considered medium security risks, whereas India, Pakistan, Ceylon were considered high risks. Only Canada was considered safe. The British were even concerned about passing information to the French as they believed that they had become compromised by the communists within the French government. Ironically, when the Americans shared these concerns with the French army, the French army totally agreed. To the surprise of the Americans, the French general staff conceded that the France was rife with corruption and communists. MI6 also spied on fascist Spain during this period. A British businessman whose brother was an MI6 agent was tasked with gathering economic data and civil aviation data about Spain, Portugal, and the U.S., Another agent with connections to high-placed officials close to Franco was tasked with finding out information about restoring the Spanish monarchy, the attitude of the Catholic Church, relations with the Soviet Union, Argentina, and domestic issues.
In the Middle East, MI6 bribed Arab nationalist intellectuals and young army officers to take a more pro-British or pro-colonial line. 10,000 pounds a year were paid out to individuals to express pro-British views, and another 9,000 pounds were paid out by the British to uh, government to bribe local politicians and government officials. The bigger Middle East issue, however, was Zionist terrorism. Jewish immigrants from Europe had been immigrating there since the 1920s, which caused a demographic shift between the primarily Jewish European immigrants and the local Muslim Palestinians. Violence soon broke out between the two, and the British were caught in the middle. Some of these Zionists, like the Stern Gang and the Irngun, believed that it was acceptable to use terror against the British and others to establish a Jewish state. In 1946, the Stern Gang blew up the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, killing 49 people and shocking the world. Both organizations plotted to assassinate Ernst Bevin for his limiting of Jewish immigration to Palestine. MI5 also learned of Zionist terrorist plots to send five terror cells to operate in London. In 1946, Ingrun blew up the British embassy in Rome. They also attacked British military bases in Germany. MI5 worked closely with Brit- the British uh, Jewish community to identify suspects working with, with Ingram and the Stern Gang in Britain, helping to avert a number of attacks. MI6, meanwhile, attempted to track the terrorists in Europe. MI6 was tasked with sending a secret message as well to the Zionists. A team of special operations operators were deployed to Italy and France, where ships were being used to bring refugees to Palestine. British limpet mines would be used to destroy the ships while they were empty in harbor. Given the large supply of limpet mines floating around after the war, the British government could deny involvement. Second, a group called the Defenders of Palestine would take responsibility, diverting attention from the British. The attacks in France never took place, as France agreed to stop the ships from traveling to Palestine. However, during the summer of 1947, five ships in the Italian ports were attacked. One ship was sunk and two others damaged, whereas limpet mines planted on the two others failed to go off or were discovered. However, the Zionist terrorists continued to attempt attacks despite setbacks. In April 1947, the Stern Gang almost blew up the British colonial office, but the bomb failed to detonate. In June of that year, the Stern Gang mailed 21 letter bombs to different British officials such as Bevan, Attlee, and Churchill, but they again failed to explode or intercepted before they reached their target. By July, Erngun had captured two British sergeants and used them as hostages to try to secure the release of three of their comrades awaiting execution for committing terrorist acts. The British still went ahead and executed the three men. In retaliation, Ingram savagely executed the British soldiers, leaving their bodies hanging in an orange grove. The bodies were also booby-trapped, and when the British tried to take their bodies down, one of their officers was seriously injured. The Zionist terrorists never uh, mounted a successful terrorist operation in Britain before the conflict ended, as Britain handed Palestine back to the United Nations, which subsequently created the Nation of Israel. I want to thank you for listening to History of the Cold War podcast, episode 24, British Intelligence, 1945 to 1950. Remember to stay tuned for our next episode uh, in April the 1st as we examine our first cultural aspect of the Cold War, Animal Farm in 1984, and how these books have an, an origin in the Cold War but also influence our own time. Uh, don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends in history but still want to help us, 
give us a positive review on iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, fill out our survey there to help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.